So we're in uh, Genesis 12, and uh, we've started the journey of Abraham last week, and now we continue that journey, and that journey is going to be one that takes him from his home country into the promised land, and then on into Egypt, and then back out of Egypt. The study, we've got a map up there, and and Ethan tells me this is in the MacArthur Study Bible as well, if you have that, of both Abraham's journeys and Isaac's journeys. It reminded me of the hymn, uh, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. His wonders to perform, he plants his footsteps in the seas and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. So we're starting with Abraham the, the first of the patriarchs, the first of the individuals of Genesis up to this point has kind of dealt with people groups and we occasionally see uh, a single person, but now he's going to deal with a line of people. And he called Abraham last week and, and what was it that was good about Abraham that God called him? You guys remember? Hopefully not. <laughs> Nothing really. Um, we aren't given anything other than his family is, is, is coming from Ur, and that he obeyed God um, and was faithful to God in that he came out. And yet it isn't a quality in Abram, Abram that he is a faithful man. And we're going to see that today. And hopefully you'll take courage in the fact that you yourself, uh, in all the good that you do, in all the good that God accomplishes in you, you will fail. At least I do. Maybe, maybe some of you are like, so far so good, I'm doing everything God has asked me to do. Um, you would think Abraham, we're going to see him doing a lot of good here, and yet we're going to see him fail miserably. And one of the things we see in these patriarchs is this is a recurring theme. They fail over and over and over again. And that failure is not outside of the providence and the control of God. It's not just the, what the Egyptians do. It's not just what the Canaanites do. Um, it's not even as you move through uh, as uh, the kings that come after him, starting with David and moving on, or even Saul, the, the selection of Saul as king. It isn't just the disasters that befall the people from the outside. It's also their own, their own failures that befall them that God uses for good. We'll touch on this in the life of Joseph, but uh, does somebody know what uh, Joseph's brothers, when they came to him and said, you know, we're terribly sorry, dad's dead now, and you have the right to kill us all, and we're worried that's what's going to happen because he's not there to restrain. And what was Joseph's response to his brothers when they were worried about that, about what they had done to him, throwing him in a pit, leaving him for dead, and then selling him on? 
Yeah, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Those are probably the most encouraging words about the sovereignty of God you can ever read because it reminds us that in our own failures, God is working out his plan. Even when we mess up, we don't thwart the plans of God. We don't fully understand it. We can't. We look it in vain and, and try to figure out what he's doing. And those that are his own just have faith and trust that he's working it out even in our failures. And we can find great encouragement when we do sin. So let's jump to, to verse 1 there in, in chapter 12. 12 verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the first command here is to go. We talked about that a little last week. The first command to Abram is you need to go from your own country. Leave your relatives and all the benefits that come with them. We've seen the benefits and also the, the hardship that can come from the line that you live in. We certainly saw that with Cain, the hardship and the, and the evil that came through his line. We also saw positives with Seth and, and Shem moving down. But there's a benefit when the, when the Tower of Babel happened and they scattered the people, they scattered within their own people groups. They scattered within their own families um, throughout the entire world. Well, in spite of that benefit of community, God is commanding Abram, leave all that. Leave the benefits of your family, leave the benefits of your home country and what you know, and go. Abram will no longer be one of his own people. He's going to be completely starting new. He'll be completely on his own. And, and that sounds really good in some sense, but it also would be fairly scary because this is not like they're going to go and live like in our case in McCook. You know, it's halfway to Denver. It's a long way from family, but, but we can come back for football games. That's not what this is. This is him starting out in Ur and they make it all the way up here around the Euphrates before his father dies. And then he comes down and we're going to read about where he settles here in the promised land between the Jordan and the sea and then goes down into Egypt and then comes back. Ur is down here. Haran is the first place they stopped with his father Terah until he died. So that would be up towards the top of that path. So why not come straight across? Yeah, that's, just, that's terrible wilderness desert. They wouldn't have survived. So they're taking the long route. And you'll see that in Exodus, when the people leave, they could have gone up by the way of the Philistines. Philistines would have lived. They were trading people. They would have lived kind of there in Gaza. But God sends them around the long way. He sends them all the way around, down and around to come in this way. Um, from, the, from the east across the Jordan because of, uh, he knew that if, if I send them by way of the Philistines, even though I can defeat the Philistines, the people are going to lose heart and it'll be a disaster. So instead they have to 
go wander in the wilderness. Well, the reason I bring that up is because in my mind, from the beginning of time, I always think of Abram arriving by crossing the Jordan and coming in to Israel, but he doesn't. He comes down from the north, and we'll touch on that in a minute and why that's kind of important. So Abraham's no longer part of his people, but I think it's a good thing to remember here that he is a descendant of Seth. He is a descendant of that promised line, and he's, it's what God is going to do through this promised line that Abraham is blessed. Second thing we see here at the end of verse 1 is that he's going to send him to a land that God is going to show him. It's a new land that Abram doesn't know. It's going to be shown to him by God. God is going to reveal this to him. He's, he's saying, Abram, you got to trust me. I'm sending you to a land. I'm going to show you where this land is. This is brand new to you. In Hebrews 11, uh, we've been there a lot lately. This is all by faith that Abraham does this. He's trusting in, not in what is seen, but that doesn't mean it's irrational. Your faith is not in irrational things. Christianity never asks a person, believe in spite of everything you know. Believe in spite of everything you have experienced. Just have faith. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a rational, thinking man's religion. It's different than everything else around us in that regard. Abram would have been in that line of Seth. He would have had a knowledge of who God was. He is actually given a direct command by God. The God of the universe spoke to Abraham, Abram at this point, and told him to go. So he has direct revelation from God to go. I don't know about you, but if the God of the universe spoke to me, faith is not... Well, I, let me check and see if you're really God. It, it, it would have been, you're the God of the universe. Okay, that's, a, that's good. You've revealed to me in your word, in your thought, in your, your speaking to me. He's also the God of creation. As we read in Romans 2, who all realizes that there is a God? Out of all the people in the world, who realizes there is a God? Everyone does. Oh, we better go there. Let's go to Romans 2. Romans 3 is no one, no one seeks after God. But who is without excuse? I like that I give a wrong answer. Like, oh, we better go there. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe in Romans 1. Thank you. Where are we at, Elise? Read it for me. Are you in one? 120? For although they knew God, they did not honor him. Okay, so let's go back to 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So who is it that knows and understands that God created this world and that he has eternal power, a divine nature, and can clearly be seen by everybody. 
It's, it's everybody. If you go back to verse 18 and 19, you're going to find out that this is all those who fit in the ungodly and unrighteous men who suppress the truth and the unrighteousness. The truth they're suppressing is the knowledge of God, that God is actually the one who is the creator of the world and he holds divine attributes. He holds the attributes that only a God can have. So Abram would have known this is the God of creation. He would have had secondhand accounts of those who would have lived through the flood. There are people who would have, have known people personally who were around during the flood. Noah and his sons, he, they would have known them and would have said, yeah, I remember talking to Ham about what it was like to be in the ark. And they could have told Noah this. So again, the God of the universe is somebody that Abram would have had a knowledge of. And then we see when Noah obeys that faith is again connected to his action, not just knowledge, and again, not to some irrational decision. So faith, we're seeing here, is built by a rational decision, and it's also connected to action. It's not separated from action. Even the demons know who Christ is and what he did and, and, and shudder, but they don't believe, they don't follow up that that knowledge with, that, with action. So then the next promise, I will make you a great nation. Well, what does it take to be a nation? This is a popular subject. Again, the Bible shows it's relevant. What's it take to be a nation? People. You need people. What else do you need? Land. You need, here is our land. Got it encircled. You can put a wall around it, whatever. Um, you've got a land, you've got people. It isn't, God created nations. God created people to spread out, get in groups and become nations. We saw that over this last three chapters. And then what's the other thing that you need to be a nation? If everyone, if there's no rules or anything governing them, it's anarchy. It doesn't work. It's Seattle. <clears throat> it's Chaz. So what do you need? You need some sort of governance. You need some sort of, of political structure. In fact, it, they had political structure without the politicians. And then who'd they want? Well, they screwed it up. Yeah. yeah, they wanted a king. I want a king. And, and Samuel said, God, they want a king. And God said, yeah, give them Saul. <laughs> exactly. That's what God probably said. Give them Saul. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. You guys are going to love this. <sighs> and then tell him, tell him, tell him, tell him how bad Saul's going to be and what he's going to expect of him and what's going to be required. And yeah, disaster. So he's going to make him a nation more than just, I'm going to give you some land more than just, you're going to have a lot of descendants. I am going to make you a great nation. Now a great nation, Israel is never big. In fact, Egypt is going to get introduced as a, as a political foil to Israel for the first time here in chapter 12. It's not the first time it's mentioned, but it's the first time it's mentioned as, as this political foil to, to Israel. So he then says, I will bless you. You're going to get good from God. Isn't that what blessing is? What are some blessings? When you think of blessings. My wife. Okay. Yes, family. 
Absolutely. Good answer. Good answer. There we go. All right. So family, what else? Do, when we consider blessings, when the world looks at blessings, what do they think? Okay. Wealth. Absolutely. What else? What's that? Health. Absolutely. Health and longevity. Longevity of years. What else do we think of? We're, we're, an, ag- we're an agriculture state, right? What's a blessing in this state? Water, livestock, rain, land, having property, huge blessings. You basically saying you are going to get good from God. I am going to give you good. And we'll see the personal wealth, the land, the descendants, all these things. But it goes beyond that. And I am going to make your name great. You're going to have all that, plus you're going to have fame, influence, importance. I'm going to give you 2 million followers on your Twitter account. You're going to be set. Twitter's a curse, right? Anyway. Oh, it's fun. Come on. Um, So I'm going to make your name great. These other things are going to be added. And then you will be a blessing. And I think it gets defined then. What does it mean to be a blessing? I will bless those who bless you. Okay, that makes great sense. And the one who curses you, I will curse. I think that's the flip side of being a blessing to people. Is that those who bless you will be blessed. Because you're a blessing to people. So people who are in line with you, they're going to be blessed all the time. People who oppose you, they're going to be cursed. Because that's part of being a blessing to those who bless you. Those who stand against you are going to be cursed. That's just the, the, the reasonable expectation of those who curse you. Since you are a blessing, you are a positive thing. And I think we even see some of that in today's world. For the descendants of Ab- the, the physical descendants of Abraham. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the people groups, all these people that have spread out will be blessed because of you. Thank God. Why is that important? How many Jews do we have in here today? Does anybody have Jewish ancestry? That we know of? Okay. Um, so, so how is it that we're blessed if we're not Jews? Through the Messiah. We're going to see that through the spread of the, of the gospel itself. And we're going to see that even in little bits foreshadowing as nations around the nation of Israel are blessed. You can't, can't help but, but think of uh, Nineveh. When Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches to them to repent... The blessing it was on those people when they did repent, when they listened to Jonah and repented. So there's blessing coming to those who bless the people of Israel. Certainly the people uh, were a blessing when Joseph arrived in Egypt. They were a blessing to the Egyptians. The Egyptians survived a great famine that they otherwise would not have. The whole world in that area would not have if it hadn't been for Joseph and his uh, being granted by God the understanding of the dream of Pharaoh and the plan of action that he puts into place. 
but I'm way, way ahead of myself. All the people groups will be blessed because of you. Turn over to Jeremiah 33. Oh my gosh, it opened one page away. Never happens. Except it's in the wrong one. I did it again. Oh, come on. Where's the new heart in the new covenant? Somebody know? I did it again. I wrote down the wrong reference. Here, I'll find it by going to Hebrews where it's quoted. Hebrews 8. Yes, thank you. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make on the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people. So we see even coming this future covenant that's going to come and it's going to be for all people. That passage then gets quoted in Hebrews 8 to remind us about God affecting all of us even beyond just the people of Israel. I also wanted to turn there because it's mentioning a covenant that we haven't gotten to yet, a promise that we haven't gotten to that's been overridden. That, that covenant was the covenant that was made when they left the promised land, when, when Moses leads them out of, out of Egypt. We're not there yet. This is a promise when, when it speaks of he's putting a new covenant and the old covenant's going to pass away. This is not part of that old covenant that passes away. This is part of a promise between God and Abram of what's going to happen to the families of the world. We will all be blessed. That God is going to bless beyond just the people of Israel. It's that tabernacle and sacrificial system that becomes the temple system set up under Moses. That ends up passing away. But don't, don't think that everything promised up to the time of Christ is no longer valid. That's not what Hebrews 8 is teaching when it looks back at this. This this promise to Abram is still in effect. Not, Not all of it has taken place completely. This promise is still ongoing. We haven't seen all of the nations in the world fully get blessed in the way that this is foreshadowing. We're not seeing all of us become this great nation or this great nation formed. Um, Parts of it have. The people did eventually move into the promised land. The people do. um, Eventually, people are blessed for blessing Israel and they're cursed for cursing Israel. But not all of this is complete. This is still active and ongoing. 
even though parts of it have been fulfilled. So then we jump to uh, verse 4 then. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now remember again, Lot is his nephew, but there's a decent chance Lot and Abram are the same age, and Lot would have been taking over his brother's uh, possessions, his brother's place in the line. Again, family, very important. Um, And so you can consider these two as more like brothers. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So if you remember, Haran was where Terah, the father of Abram, who also left her, that's where they ended up stopping. They never made it to the promised land until after the father died. So they depart from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land, far as the site of Shechem. Do you want to pull that up again, Ethan, or whoever has slide power? As far as the site of Shechem to the Oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar to him there who had appeared to him, or to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. So we have Abram coming in. Shechem and Bethel and then down, you know, where Ai is and then going down into the the Negev. What has he done in taking that course versus coming east to west? As far as, has he, he's kind of seen it all, hasn't he? He's basically just walked the promised land versus my perception of everything before was that, yeah, he came across and went in and kind of never really went up and down until he went down to Egypt. But basically God has brought him away where he's walking along in the land and he gets to see all that God is giving him. He's getting to, he's literally passing through the land. He's literally going through everything that God has promised so that he sees it all. And we see this once again, God appearing to him and saying, to your descendants, I will give this land. So, and Abram's response there is to build an altar. And then he proceeds on to uh, Bethel in the west of Ai on the east. And there he built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. So we're seeing that, that Abram is returning to God. He is actually responding to an appearance of God initially and then continuing in this worship continuing in some form of sacrificial system. We don't fully understand what exactly was required or how it was set up. We just know that it started, uh, first animal that was killed for man was certainly when Adam and Eve are are clothed. And we see it in Abel as he produces by faith a better sacrifice than his brother, uh, bringing animals for sacrifice. We see it again as uh, Noah sacrifices, and we see it now coming up again as Abram has built an altar to sacrifice to God. More importantly, Abram is leading his family in the worship of God. He's a foreigner in a foreign land, and he is uh, moving this group 
this family of his as the leader with in mind the idea that they are going to be worshiping God wherever they settle, wherever they go. So it also mentions there that the Canaanites are there. And I think it's, it's important that we remember the context of this, which is this is being given to the people of Israel as they are going into the same land. Amazing part is Moses is telling them the names of cities they have not seen yet. He's telling the Israelites the names of the people that are there and saying they were there when your father Abraham was here. And we're going to go in and take this now. But Abram, even in, in living in a foreign land and living in a foreign country, is still looking forward to what God has promised him. And we see him respond positively to that promise. When God says, I'm going to give you all this land, he doesn't look around and say, hey, God, there's a whole bunch of Canaanites here. It's a nice place, but uh, I don't see you handing it to me yet. No, he builds an altar and he worships God. In fact, in the two different places it mentions him living, he still builds an altar and worships God. He's living in a, in a land where the people are heathens, where they are not worshiping God, where they're, uh, at this point, the implication is that they haven't gotten as bad as they're going to get. Their sin has not completely filled up the wrath of God that he's going to pour out on them to destroy them all forever. But they're working that way. And that's where Abram is living right now. And yet, in spite of that, he turns and he worships God. He trusts that what God's going to do. If we look over again at Hebrews 11, it's nice because Hebrews kind of gives us the commentary of, of this. Hebrews 11, 8. The hall of faith again. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Again, God said, I will show you a land. So he didn't know where he was going to go. If you jump down to verse um, 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So Abraham is not going to receive the nation. He's not going to be set up as king over all of Israel. Israel is not going to become a nation in his time. He's looking forward to what God has promised seeing it off in a distance. And at that time, he's the one living as an exile, as a stranger among these people. And yet when God says, here's all the land I'm going to give you, he continues to be faithful and turn to God in worship. Verse 14, for those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We'll stop there before we get to more stories of Abram. So obviously, we'll be back in Hebrews 11 once Isaac comes along. But we see that Abraham is looking forward to a kingdom God will give. And while it is a very real place, this is the first indication that this is also a spiritual promise. Hebrews 11 makes that even more clear for us by saying so. So it's not just pursuing a land that is real, that is an actual place that we see God fulfill by giving to the people, 
among a people God is promising to punish, the Canaanites. But we also see that there's a religious, or not a religious, there's also a spiritual aspect to this promise that Abraham is looking forward to. And, and Hebrews 11 gives us insight into that. He's looking forward to a kingdom built by God, an eternal kingdom that doesn't go away. We get another insight in that story of him sacrificing Isaac that Hebrews 11 tells us he, he knew that God was able to raise someone from the dead and so he could confidently sacrifice his own son, knowing that there's a spiritual connection to the promises of God as well, that both are, both are true. And like I said, we've seen these things fulfilled partially at this time, but certainly not fully, certainly not the kingdom that God has in mind that lasts eternally. We're still waiting for that to come as well. If there's questions about that later. I'd be happy to answer them. So again, we see him first settle and then settle again between Bethel and Ai, builds another altar, calls on the name of God, staying faithful in worship. And then he moves down to the Negev, completing the tour of the promised land. He's seen it all. He's been there. And again, telling the people of Israel, the Israelites, before they go into the land, knowing that, yes, we've been there. Yes, God promised it. Yes, this is where it all started. This is where Abraham was promised by God to receive the land. That's what we're moving to. So then, jumping back in verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. Hard stop. Everything turns around. This was, everything is going great. Abraham is in the land. God's promised the land. Now there's a famine. Next clause. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there for, there was a famine, for the famine was severe in the land. I don't know what to do with that. Is that good or bad? What do you guys think? You have Abraham, Abram. He's in the promised land where God just sent him, and now hardship hits. He's got a ton of livestock we're finding out. We're going to find out that God even gives him more. He's got all of these people with him, and there's a famine. So positives to going to Egypt. What are some good reasons to go to Egypt? Anybody? They have a Nile, and that gives them some, at least some, uh, ability to survive a famine. So we won't all die of this famine, right? So that's a, that's a good thing. He's not going to be putting pressure on what food and pasture lands are available to the people who are actually in the land, who have the land. And so he's going to be getting along better with them. Um, God is the one who provides a country of Egypt correct? And uh, you'd be silly to ignore those things that God gives for opportunity to avoid utter failure. But at the same time, we don't see anywhere in here where God has told him to go to Egypt. And we don't see anything in here where uh, he consults God on this. We're not told by that. Um, certainly God could have provided same time, you look at Christ, and Christ is sent from, from as a baby when Herod starts killing all the babies, Christ flees to Egypt. I'm not going not to say Joseph was bad there. We see Joseph go, the, the first Joseph go to Egypt. 
So I think this is a challenge to know where was, where was Abram's heart in this? We're not really told. But we do know it's starting to, it's going to lead to a bad incident for Abram. Very negative things about to, to happen. Again, this is where we see the relationship between the Hebrews and Egypt start. And whenever we see Egypt dealt with in the Old Testament, it is almost exclusively dealt with as a picture of the world. So you have Israel as a nation that is supposed to be under God's authority. God is the monarch there. And you have Egypt, which is the pagan world view. The, the, everything that is positive about the world is in Egypt. The wealth, the military might, the land that is rich with this river that Ethan brings up called the Nile. Um, this is an awesome place to live. Again, everything that could tempt us in this world is there. It's available to you. And that's going to be a recurring theme. And this is the first time that we see the people of Israel, namely Abram and his family, interact with Egypt. And I, I struggle with the idea of, okay, is this, is this good or bad? I, I think we should just read the story and see what happens. Um, so he heads down to Egypt. Verse 11, and it came about when he came near Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, Sarai's how old? Like 80. She's old. Uh, See now. I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Kind of half true. She would have been more like second cousin, cousin, niece. So she is, we had the, we had the slide up last week and now I've forgotten it. So she would have been not technically his sister, but could t- certainly be claimed to be his sister. They're, they're close enough. Not technically a lie. Uh, but again, we see here, a challenge being brought to Abram and he is not acting in faith that God will protect him, that God will protect her. He's worried about how these people are going to react to him. And it also gives us some insight into the type of people the Egyptians were. That, that they are people who value appearance. They're people who, who uh, are brutal He's concerned about his life and what's going to become of him. If, he, uh, if they see her, want her, they'll kill him to get her. And so we're starting to get some idea of who the Egyptians are. We're also seeing the, uh, the beauty of Sarah, clearly. That Sarah is so beautiful in her fifth decade of life, fourth, fifth decade of life, that when people see her, they're going to go tell Pharaoh about her. That's how beautiful she was. And there is an understanding there that, that Abram had of this beauty and also that the people of Egypt, that, that was important to them. And sure enough, they are, they are impressed with Sarah. 
So it came about when Abram went into Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abraham, Pharaoh did, treated Abraham very well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. The relationship here between Abram and Sarai must have been just a little bit strained, don't you suppose? Honey, lie to him so I don't die. You're going to go be in a harem. In exchange, I'm going to get some cows. And he goes through with it. And he's like, great, I'm alive. It's all good. Not a problem. I've done what it's taken to, to save my skin. This is the man who just showed he could walk away from everything but his immediate family and go to a completely different world and live among strangers and was okay with it, continue to worship God, and then a famine comes. And we're seeing the character of Abram, I'm afraid. And hopefully, I see myself in that. Hopefully, you'll see some of yourself in that as well. Again, as you read through the Old Testament, when people do really stupid things, that isn't for you to have the opportunity to say, I am glad I'm not that stupid. You should look for in your heart where it is that you experience the great, awesome power of God in your life and then turn and do stupid things and act with complete lack in faith of what God can do for you and say, oh crap, I'm like them. How does he get out of this? Next verse, but the Lord. All right, sounds good. God's going to do something. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? So somehow Pharaoh figures it out. And I don't know if Sarai tells him or what, but somebody lets on, hey, the reason we're experiencing all of these plagues is because of Sarai. So Pharaoh calls Abram in. I, if I was Pharaoh, I'd probably just kill Abram right there. Like you're toast. But probably not a good idea since God is clearly protecting Abram. Um, Pharaoh's probably smarter than I am and is going, dude, just please leave. Uh, leave me alone. Take everything. And that's basically what happens here. Take your frogs with you. <laughs> Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away and his wife and all that belonged to him. And then we're going to see in 13 verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. So they end up in Egypt to, to flee a famine Abram comes up with a, a trick to save his skin. By the way, another, another recurring theme that we're going to see in the book of Genesis is these are a bunch of conniving people. The whole line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all think of clever ways. And then you, when you go back to the people Abram came from, Laban, Laban's going to do the same thing in giving up his daughters. There's a lot of uh, Rachel as well in, in dealing with her sons. Um, or I'm sorry, Rebecca in dealing with her sons. So we're seeing same thing. Abram is a conniving 
man who's trying to get around the struggles put in front of him through his own wisdom and his own understanding of things and gets caught. And who is it that catches him? And who is it that reproves Abram? Who's that? Who is it that tells Abram, you've done something really screwed up here? Pharaoh. The king of the pagan world at the time goes to the man of God and says, what have you done? You can't do this. This is wrong. Don't you see this? How humiliating that must have been for Abram to be corrected, to be reproved by the world, by the leader of the pagan world is telling Abram, what is this thing you have done? It calls to mind 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, after Paul goes through this long, the the first four chapters trying to be nice to the Corinthians. He finally gets to, I think, gets finished beating around the bush. And in in chapter one and two, he goes, what is this evil that I hear among you that one of you has taken his father's wife? Even the pagans know this is screwed up. What are you guys doing? And that's what we're seeing here. The same picture of the world is actually judging Abram. It had to be humiliating for Abram to go through that. And it also had to be a reminder to the people of Israel as they're traveling and Moses is giving them this story and telling them about this incident um, that they themselves are about to go among a pagan people. Certainly is a reminder to me that the pagans have no problem living terrible lives and they will judge you based on one of your sins. They will be more than happy to point out one, two little problems in your life and say, but you are a person who claims to be godly and a Christian and born again and evangelical. And look, I see you did that one thing. That's how it works. But it should still be humiliating to us. I don't think in any of this second half of chapter 12 that Abram is acting in faith to God. But I think it is laying the groundwork for what's going to come in the future with the people of Israel and Egypt. Somehow through all of this, Pharaoh treats Abram really well and blesses him. Getting back to that initial blessing, we're already seeing people who should be not blessing Abram are actually blessing him and giving him stuff literally giving him things. So just be aware, we started this again with the idea that faith comes um, by an exposure to who God is and what he's done for you. Faith comes by uh, an understanding, a rational understanding of, of what God is capable of. And it responds with an action. Lack of faith is also expressed in action. And we see a lack of faith here by Abram. Again, Abram is not someone to be lifted up as high and mighty above all other saints. He's, our, he's the number one guy. And certainly in Christ's time, that's how he was presented. And so I think it's, it's fitting that we see here the way God presents in the first real clear narrative after calling him up from from the land of Ur is this failure on the part of of Abram. 
so that we know these are true men. One of the ways you know the Bible is real. If the Bible was, was written by a group of people trying to convince you of, of uh, some sort of ideas about religion, their heroes would be these faultless people. Instead, they're real people. And, and if you look at your own heart, they're a lot like, they're a lot like you. Finally, the Bible is teaching us things about people and things about ourselves through a narrative. We've been now through 12 chapters of Genesis, the first 12 chapters of the Bible. And last week, we kind of reviewed everything we learned. And let me just say that you're learning these things through an understanding of a story. And I think that's really important. Those of you who have children, teach your children when they're small these stories of who God is and what he's done. Because that's the way God has designed us to learn these things, to learn about him is through a narrative, through a story. He gets a little more detailed. Thank goodness he does because he starts explaining some of the questions we have in these first 12 chapters. And he does it even better in, in more of the New Testament writings. But the basis of everything you have and everything you believe so far has pretty well been covered in the first 12 chapters now of Genesis. The narrative is important. It's also easier to remember um, the narrative rather than memorizing the first 12 verses, first 12 chapters. And so there's a huge value in teaching your children. We, we have a tendency to teach the Bible giving little snippets of little stories rather than this big, broad base of understanding of who God is and what he's done through, from creation on. And so I just encourage you that you hold on to some of those things that um, are the stories we aren't guaranteed in this day and age to have our Bibles forever. Someone, someone posted something online about the idea that you, could, uh, you should be buying your Bibles because at some point they may no longer let them print. Like, well, you should probably be memorizing and learning your Bible because someday they may take yours away. They may come into your house and take it away. They could try. And, they, and they, in history, they've succeeded. So just so you're aware, it can be done. But they can't take away what you hide in your heart and the stories that the Bible gives. That's kind of how this whole thing would have been given. Again, in context to a group of people, not the most literate people in the world, and God's teaching them through stories because they can't all carry around scrolls that wouldn't have been available. And so just be aware of the way you're learning so far about who God is and, and treasure these things. Read through your Bible. Learn these stories. Don't learn single verses and, and know those as much as you do the whole picture. Memorization is important, but know that whole picture. I'll pray. Lord, we just thank you so much that, again, you have given us your word. You've given us an understanding of who you are uh, by showing us how you interact with the world. And then now we're going to start seeing who you are by your interaction with the individual men over, over an extended period of time. And, and Lord, we, we see that you interact with us in the same way. You speak to us through your word, Lord, and you help us understand who you are uh, through your word, through the Bible. And then we interact with that, Lord. None of us do it perfectly and we all fail just as Abram did. Yet even in Abram's failures, you, you blessed him because you have a plan for him. He's the man that your heart has selected as the one carrying on the line for your son. And we just look forward to the promise that was made to Abram, that heavenly kingdom that was promised him that comes through the seed that was promised to Adam and Eve. And Lord, we're still looking for that uh, seed here in our story, but we've seen him come in Christ. 
And Lord, I pray that we would bear that in mind and we would rejoice in what we do have, the understanding of what we have seen as we, as we anticipate his return as well. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.